Counting by Sevens by Holly Goldberg Sloan. As you listen to today's read aloud podcast, please think about what role you have in our discussion for Friday. If you need to have a notebook or sketchbook nearby to write or draw notes to help you remember questions you might have or vocabulary words you're describing or a summary of the text that you're looking to provide, please go gather those now. Chapter 47. The new court date was set. Patty held the document in her hands. The system was responsible for children until the day they turned 18 years old. So, Willow Chance had six years to navigate these waters. Patty remembered the note that Willow had written the first day she met her social worker at the nail salon. She couldn't imagine that any other kid had presented something as precise. Willow had a high-functioning brain. That much was clear. So, what does the world do with a 12-year-old girl without family and a network of close friends? What were the choices? In the big envelope the social worker had sent, Patty now found a pamphlet for the next state-sponsored adoption fair. From what she could see, the process looked like speed dating. The fairs were held in a park. Prospective parents arrived and mingled with busloads of kids who came with social workers. Hot dogs and hamburgers were served. A softball game was usually organized. The idea was just be natural and give people a chance to get to know each other. According to the statistic on the last page of the informational brochure, there were matches made, and of course, sometimes they worked out. Patty felt certain that the little kids, especially the cute ones, got all the attention since they were featured in the pamphlet. The older kids, even the more outgoing ones who were trying to sell themselves, no doubt ended up the snakes at the petting zoo. People probably kept their distance. It was hard to imagine Willow Chance in such a setting, but maybe she would defy the odds. Hadn't she been doing that her whole life? May liked to shop, so even her mother's regular trip to the farmer's market presented an opportunity to browse. Patty always brought chicken feet from the man who sold organic eggs. He saved them for her in a special color of cooler of ice. She used the yellow fowl feet to make a soup that May had to admit was delicious, but it tasted better if you didn't see the ingredients. While her mother went down her shopping list, May wandered the aisles of the parking lot turned market, looking at the organic honey and the purple turnips. Willow said that she used to grow everything that they sold there in her own backyard. May looked at the lettuce and the potatoes and the onions and the red cabbage. It didn't seem possible, but Willow wasn't a liar about anything. At the far end of the last aisle was a man playing a banjo. May moved closer to hear him. The sun was shining, but it wasn't the punishing heat of summer or late spring. The air was still cool. May took a seat on the edge of the curb and listened. She couldn't help herself from imagining the notes of the plucking strings playing for dancing chickens. And then in her dreamy vision, the birds suddenly were without feet. May stood up. She felt a growing sense of panic as she looked in all directions for her mother. It wasn't just the idea of the feetless fowl that was causing her distress. She now saw sunflowers for sale in tubs in almost all of the stalls. 
she hadn't noticed them before. Each blossom held its own unique possibility. Willow told her that if they didn't get their small sunflower plants at home into the ground soon, they'd be stunted. She said that they needed to put down a real root system to achieve their potential. Don't we all, thought May as she hurried toward her mother in the distance. Don't we all. Chapter 48. Big news. My binder worked, and the bank has given Del Duke the go-ahead to do the garden conversion. But the letter, which is from the senior vice president's office, had additional information besides the legal permission to take up the rock pile. Someone over there at the North-South Bank is on top of things, because, as the letter states, taking the initiative to improve the property as a renter shows a commitment to the values we hold at North-South Bank. We have never in the history of the bank seen such a thorough proposal. Therefore, Mr. Duke, in addition to granting you permission to plant a garden in the central uncovered atrium, we have made the decision to ask you to be the building representative for the gardens of Glenwood. I don't think anyone ever asked Dell to represent anything before. He looks like he won the lottery. It's a strange combination of being wildly excited and deeply afraid. I'm wondering now about his parents. Maybe as a toddler, he was locked in a woodshed in a cold climate for extended periods of time. He appears to have just been let out. Looking at him as he reads the letter a sixth time aloud, I realize he's sort of weeping. I assure him that being the building rep is a big honor that he richly deserves. The next thing I know, he's down in the garage, putting a sign in front of the best parking space in the open carport. It reads, Reserved for Building Rep, Dill Duke, Unit 28. I guess he just doesn't get what being of service means. Now that we have permission, the plan can be executed. It's Saturday, and we're all here except Patty, who has the most customers on the weekends. I asked Kwang Ha how he would suggest we remove the red lava rock. I secretly think he might want to get involved in all this. He isn't remotely interested. But apparently, he got something out of Tom Sawyer, even if he didn't read it or write the paper on Mark Twain. He only says, give the rock away. People love anything they think is free. This strikes me as accurate. I go down the hall to discuss the idea with Dell. Sadhu is there in the living room. He's a lot nicer to me since I made Dell a computer. He has even asked my opinion on a few technical things, and I'm allowed to borrow his 15-watt soldering gun. When I explain to Dell that my plan is to give away the rock, Sadhu says, list it online. It will be gone before you know it. I post an offering of free lava landscaping rock. I say that if you can haul it away, you can have it. Only seven minutes later, I get my first response. Kwang Ha appears to be right. The idea of something for nothing is appealing in some visceral way. Even if free things are never free. The burden of ownership means everything has a price. I think that's why really rich and famous people look so weighed down and glum in most photos. They know that they have to keep their guard up. They have things other people want. I have said that the Red Rock is on a first-come, first-serve basis. 
before I know what's going on, I have four different people over here fighting over this stuff. The lava rock enthusiasts scare me. Since Dell is now the building rep, I make him go down and deal with it. I have no idea what he says, but May and I hear all kinds of shouting. The important thing is that in two hours, all of the rock is gone, and so is the ripped black plastic sheeting underneath. I said that it was also free. We all head downstairs. Even Kwang Ha wants a look, and we stare at the newly exposed dirt. What remains is only the hard-packed ground. It's not even brown. It's dusty gray. Maybe the construction crew dumped a few leftover bags of concrete on their way out. I guess everyone is thinking the same thing, but Kwang Ha is always the one who gives the unspoken a voice. He says, nothing's going to grow here. Patty has just come home from work, and she seems more worn out than usual. She stands with us and stares at the big rectangle of nothing. Finally, she adds, It's a bigger looking space when it's not covered with rocks. Dell chimes in, and a bigger project than anyone thought. Patty sighs and starts up the stairs. Most things are. I don't want to be crushed, but it's possible they are talking about me, not the ugly exposed area that is now the centerpiece of the courtyard. May puts her hand on my shoulder. She says, let's go eat. Everything looks better in the daylight. It looks even worse in the full sun. I go downstairs early, and it's only me in the dirt, which I now realize has a gritty top, like someone sprinkled coarse sea salt on a great cracker. Even if I got everyone in this entire complex to join me here with garden tools, I don't think we could make it happen. Plus, I've only seen a few of the other residents, and they don't look like people who would want to swing a pickaxe. Regular soil is a crazy mix of everything from fine rock fragments to water, air, insects, and even bacteria and fungi. It's all necessary. I remember the first time I looked under the microscope at a pinch of the dirt from my own backyard. It was a shocker. Now, as I think about this open space, I know what has to be done. Deep tilling of the soil isn't a good idea unless you are facing the kind of ground we have here in the gardens of Glenwood. But this situation calls for heavy machinery. We have to rent a rototiller. I can't do this myself for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is that you have to be 18 years old to even legally operate the equipment. I go back upstairs, and when May wakes up, I explain the situation. She doesn't look like she has any idea what I'm talking about, even when I clarify that a rototiller is a machine with sharp blades that mechanically chop soil. But she understands something because she says, so we need an adult, a credit card, and a car. Dell wants no part of this. May has done a lot of talking, but it's the resident from unit number 11 who makes the difference. A guy named Otto Saez. I would give anything to have a name that it was a palindrome. Knocks on the door. He wants to know what's happening with the big dirt patch in the courtyard. Otto Saez doesn't look very happy because his unit opens right up onto the future garden site. 
I'm guessing from his attitude that he didn't have a problem with the patch of red lava rock and weeds. Dell has to talk to the guy because he's the building rep. I hear him explain. It's all going to be planted. You'll see. We are right in the middle of the project. I catch sight of Otto Saez and he's still scowling. He barks. Nothing in the world will grow there. Then the magical part happens because Dell sort of puffs up and says, You just wait and see. Chapter 49. A rototiller is like a jackhammer, but for the dirt. And we get one. Kwang Ha doesn't come to Sam's U-Rent on Saturday because he is going bowling. I had no idea he was a bowler. But maybe that's how it is with bowling. You do it and then leave it behind. I think Dell would have liked to go bowling instead of to Sam's U-Rent. But he's agreed to this. The machine we rent requires real upper body strength to operate especially when it is attacking hard ground, so only Dell can use it. Dell's pretty doughy around the middle, and his large stomach vibrates as if it's been put in a can and shaken at the paint store in one of those mixing machines. But the good news is that the solid ground really gets pulverized. The bad news is that Dell is probably going to be too sore to walk for a week. I investigate the newly tilled soil downstairs in the future garden, At dinner, I share the good news. I tested the soil, and it's neutral. The pH is a perfect seven. May and Patty and Dell look up from their food. Kwong Ha keeps shoveling with his fork. Plants, like people, thrive when there is balance. So when your soil is too acidic, which can be thought of as sour, you should lower the pH factor. You can do this by adding lime. When the soil is too alkaline, which can be thought of as too sweet, you need to add sulfur. I explain this, but I can tell that it's not a spellbinding discussion for the people I live with. Dell says, did you taste the soil to find out? I can't del- tell whether Dell men- means this as a joke or not, but it causes Kwong Ha to laugh. I realize that whenever he's laughing, it's some kind of relief. It's like a dam bursting. Patty says, that's great, Willow. Kwong Ha then mutters, what's really being measured are ions of hydrogen. He seems as surprised as I am at his own statement. He puts more spicy sauce on his pork, looking guilty as if learning something in science class is a crime. Table silence. May then says, And seven is your favorite number, Willow? I don't explain that I don't count by sevens anymore, but I do still appreciate the beauty of the number. I'm thinking that everyone will get more involved tomorrow when we do the planting. And I find I'm really looking forward to that. There was an X factor, an unseen or unknown influence. We went to sleep with a large rectangle of newly tilled, well-balanced soil in the courtyard where we live. It was a thing of beauty, at least to me. But a Santa Ana wind blew in in the middle of the night. This happens here. Certain conditions propel a stream of dry air from the mountains to the shoreline. We wake to a dust bowl. I have never seen such filth. The walls and the windows of the first floor units are covered in a layer of newly ground dirt. I go downstairs and I stare. It's as if a grime tornado hit the place. After I show Dell, he limps to the garage and yanks down the building rep parking sign. He doesn't want anyone to know where he lives. 
Dell is so sore from his rototiller experience that he can barely move. Or maybe he's just upset about the dirt damage. He wraps himself in a blanket, lies down on the floor of his apartment, and closes his eyes. He looks like a mummy. I would like to take a picture, but I decide it's not appropriate. May has a plan. She puts up a large sign downstairs. It says, construction project underway. Apologies for inconvenience. I feel like we should tell Dell what we're up to, but May says to leave him alone. May then gets her mother to drive Dell's car to Sam's U-Rent, where we return the rototiller and now rent a power sprayer. May and Dell have different approaches to everything in life. May is the ultimate pragmatist. Maybe she gets that from her mother. Power sprayers are powerful, hence the name. I haven't been around one until now, so this is all new to me. We get back to the gardens of Glenwood and May goes upstairs and puts on her new used jacket. She bought the designer jacket when I got my running shoes and I thought it was a waste of money. Now I wish I had one. It said, sorry, her new used raincoat. Pardon me. Now I wish I had one. Kwong Ha comes downstairs where we're just about to get started. Maybe because the rental equipment resembles a machine gun, he looks interested. Kwong Ha wants to try pressure spraying. He fires up the engine, and it's as if he's holding a gun. The force of the water takes a lot of strength to control. A river of grime falls. I watch from a distance, and it takes some time before I realize that something else is happening besides the cleanup. The pink paint underneath the dirt is also being removed. And so is the bumpy stunko coating. This is all demonstrating the theory of connectedness, not mathematically speaking, but in a real-world way. Removing the lava rock and black plastic liner exposed the hard-packed dirt. Once that was tilled and the wind whipped a portion of it up into the walls, the power sprayer was brought in, and that started to take off the deadly colored pink paint as well as the grime. What's underneath is a soft, natural gray. But now we have to power spray the whole place to make it match, or else repaint the building. Connectedness. One thing leads to another, often in unexpected ways. Chapter 50. We rotate. If the sprayer is on the lowest setting, even I can manage. Kwang Ha does a huge section, pretending, I believe, that he's in a video game. I take my turn, but my productivity is lousy. It's such a struggle for me to control the nozzle that I can barely move. I am the littlest one, but I give it everything I have. I'm pretty sure that I haven't been doing my afternoon jogging. If I hadn't been doing my afternoon jogging, I wouldn't have lasted for more than a minute on my feet. We have to be careful because the filthy water runs down the windows. So after we've washed an area, we then need to clean the glass, but we can't do that with this power sprayer. We are all now working, even Dell, when Jairo's taxi pulls up. I see him and Patty talking for a while at the curb. Somehow, it doesn't seem strange that his whole back seat just happens to be filled with rags and three of those squeegee things. Haido finds an extension ladder in the carport and he takes over the window issue. It's dark and we're still at it. Even Kwang Ha hasn't given up. We take turns sitting on the plastic milk crates and aiming flashlight beams up at the building.
A man comes out, and we think he's going to yell at us, but he's friendly and gives us each a peppermint candy. He even donates a poinsettia for the garden when we're ready to plant. He's had it for almost a year, and I can't believe he's kept it alive. We have finished the interior court wall, yard walls, and now we're working on our way around the outside of the building. We have brooms to direct the runoff, which is a big job in and of itself. There is a pink-brown stream with stucco bits that flows from whatever area has been sprayed. If you aren't aiming the light, you are swooshing the water down into the drains. Hairo has been washing windows for hours. Kuang Ha has taken control as the most valuable player of apartment power spraying. He is the only one who power sprays like an athlete. Since I've never seen him do any kind of sport, and I'm skeptical about his bowling, I'm surprised. Physical stamina is a component in leadership, even in the modern world, where it isn't necessary to be able to harness an ox. Because it is still impressive if you can. As it gets real late, really late, Dell retrieves one of his old lawn chairs from the second floor balcony. He starts to relax. Or maybe the muscle pain relievers Patty gave him kick in. People now seem to think the garden is a good idea. It's possible they are just thrilled to have their windows washed. The sky is filled with stars. More stars than I ever remember seeing, and I've spent a lot of time at night with my head tilted back analyzing the constellations. Kuang Ha has done more laughing in the last 10 hours than I've seen in the last 10 weeks. He just finds everything funny now. I didn't understand until recently that emotions could be so contagious. I now know why comedians are important in culture. Sitting on a milk crate in the middle of the night with a flashlight illuminating what at this point is a paint blasting project, I laugh too. At nothing, really. And then I realize that I'm laughing because I'm laughing. It's after three in the morning. Jairo's gone. Patty went to bed after he left. May can't seem to stop herself from pushing runoff water away from the building with a broom. Dell is still outside, but he's been asleep on his lawn chair for an hour. He got cold and climbed into a black plastic garbage bag. He punched his feet through the bottom, and now he reminds me of a talking raisin I once saw in a TV commercial. A guy in the apartments across the street told us to turn off the machine a few hours ago, but Kuang Ha ignored him. Finally, Kuang Ha gives us a signal, and May kills the motor. She and Kuang Ha and I stand back and point our flashlights as we stare at what's been done. Layers have been removed of dirt and pink paint and acne-like lumpy stucco. The whole surface of the structure is smooth and sleek. All the cracks are gone, and so are the bald patches where the stucco had crumbled off. The odd design of the place, with its high windows and box-like mass, now appears futuristic and forward-thinking, at least to me. And it's not an exaggeration to say that the Gardens of Glenwood is the cleanest building in all of Bakersfield. For three days, it is hard for any of us to move our arms. We walk around like plastic soldiers with our limbs held tightly to our sides. I go down at night and water the dirt to keep it from blowing again. And I prep the soil. I add a slow-release granular fertilizer that I got Dell to buy at Home Depot. By midweek, we are ready for the next step. 
We have over four dozen sunflowers in 23 containers, a less than thriving poinsettia, and bags of mulch to spread. As soon as we put the sunflowers in the ground, they should take off. They will send roots down as far as six feet into the soil. Their single stems in the next few weeks will each produce a terminal flower bud. I know how this all works. About a month later, they've, after they've gained up to eight feet in height, the large flat disc that is the flower will unfurl. For a week, it will bloom. Bees will arrive and pollinate the many florets that make up what we think of as the single flower, but what is in reality many, many small blossoms. A week later, when the blooming is over, the florets will turn into seeds and ripen. All of the energy will move to this next generation of life. The plant will have given birth to the future, and then it will be done. This is the way it works, from the bacteria in the sink to the fruit fly circling the bowl of bananas. We're all doing the same thing. But if people saw all this for what it really is, who knows if anyone would get out of bed in the morning? I will soon have the garden covered with a crop of sunflowers, but in five weeks it will have to be replanted, and so will I. What goes in the soil next should be more permanent. Right now, I'm the sunflower, temporary but attaching myself to the ground underneath me. The garden is challenging me, as always, to see my own situation. My court hearing is next month. I'll be ready. I'm not sure for exactly what, but maybe that's what being ready really means. And that concludes our reading of Counting by Sevens. Please make sure to take any notes that you need in order to participate in Friday's discussion, whether it be your vocabulary words, your questions, or a summary of everything we have read thus far. <laughs>